Women as One promotes talent in medicine by bringing the unique talents of women to the forefront. We believe that, as one, women can use their collective voice to change the landscape of medicine. So, good afternoon, good morning. I am Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. I'm the CEO of 21st. I live in London, but work a little bit all over the world. We work on gender balancing businesses. So, we work a lot with large multinational companies, mostly accompanying their leadership teams on building skills and strategies to sustainably balance their businesses. See, I started out being born in Canada, in uh, Quebec City, of a French mother and a Swiss father, both immigrants from Europe. I grew up in Toronto, and did all my schooling and university there, and then re-emigrated back as soon as I got my BA in hand to live in Paris for the next 30 years. And that's where I founded marriages, families, companies, <laughs> and a lot of other things. I was originally a computer scientist. That was my first degree. And on the basis of this really new and emerging skill, I arrived in Paris and had lots of job offers. And I started as an IT programmer for L'Oreal back in 1981, or the dark ages. And since then, and with the help of an MBA, I moved into management consulting and then started very early on, in fact, remarkably at the same time that I got married, start companies. And I have run several. I ran a company first in corporate communications consulting at a time when a lot of European companies were going international and a lot of international companies were investing in Europe. And I got a little involved in some of the dot-com excitement and worked momentarily for a career platform that got me very interested in coaching. And at the same time, I started a non-profit on the side aimed at women called Global PWN Today, which really brought my attention to the issue of women, careers, and progress that I had not necessarily personally experienced. But running this nonprofit for a decade, I got very familiar with some of the issues still on the ground for women in their careers. When I emerged from that, one of my takeaways, because a lot of companies were coming to us and asking for help, understanding women was that work was super important and there was another chapter that needed doing basically the other half of the equation was helping companies and managers understand how to adapt to this new more gender balanced world and talent pool and customer base we're coming to the end of an era and decades of what i call nicely fix the women strategies as though that were our analysis of why there is not more gender balance and power, then I think it's really important that we collectively acknowledge that the issue in 2020 is not women. <laughs> the issue is the lack of institutional adjustment and management adjustment to a new reality, which I hope will be geared up by some of the changes we're seeing today. I don't think anybody anymore is much going to argue about gender balance being a good thing 
I think, where we all fall down, in part because of what we as women have done and asked for over the decades, is that we misunderstand the problem and misframe the issues. So I'd suggest that we're still very often, women and men, kind of colluding in an analysis that women aren't quite ready, not quite skilled, not quite confident enough to be recognized and promoted. And so all of the programs that companies well-meaningly develop in response often to women inside those companies asking for them are aimed at addressing that analysis of the obstacles. Our analysis of the obstacles is that women are skilled, ready, educated, and raring to go, and that the systemics of leadership, mindsets, organizational cultures, and the systemics and processes designed by men for men inside large organizations are not adapted to 21st century talent and market reality. And so the will part is, yeah, it's nice to have lots of well-meaning, well-intentioned organizations and leaders saying, I support you ladies, go for it, and thinking their systems are meritocratic and level playing fields, and actually having leaders and organizations that are skilled at understanding the complexities of what's actually going on, how their organizations contribute to not changing that reality fast enough and really getting essentially what we consider to be a men-on-men issue going forward, getting male leaders to convince men in male-dominated workplace environments that it's time to change. So companies that have done well, typically, let's let's put up a Unilever, that's an interesting company in a a variety of ways, very human-oriented, very sustainable. These are not unrelated to the fact that they are able to not only attract, but also develop women. It was a top priority for the now-retired CEO, Paul Pullman, who thought it was in his top three goals and drove it relentlessly by a very top-down process of spending time, energy, money, and skilling up his leaders all over the globe on why this was important and how they should go about shifting the balance. And over the course of five years, they did and have just recently, I think, announced that they are now gender balanced at every level. In fact, parity 50-50. I think that's pretty exemplary role model in the corporate world on, on this issue. Other companies that are perhaps more typical, there's a small group of these, what I would call first moving companies, which we actually have on our scorecards of companies around the globe and how they're doing on gender balance on our website. But the mass of companies, I would say like the 90% of the big tail of corporations around the world haven't even really started on the journey. So there's a lot of work to do. They might still be in a well-intentioned, let's have a women's network, let's organize a, you know, a women's conference on March 8th, International Women's Day. Let's you know, 
appoint a woman to head up HR and she'll be the only woman on our executive team are still the kind of things you will typically see in the majority of companies. I'd say that's the kind of pink washing that companies are doing a lot of so that they don't get attacked for being completely obtuse to the topic and they can camouflage behind, uh, well, we're trying and look at all the really nice things we're doing for women. I always love the what is possible or impossible, right? I mean, you know, we didn't know that we could go to the moon. We thought that was impossible, but we kind of pulled together the will and then the skills to do so, right? But saying it's impossible because look at these schools, there aren't any women in there, is what everybody says. I mean, that's what business schools were saying a decade ago. Now they're pushing up above 40% women. That's what engineering schools were saying until some of the leading engineering schools in the country, like MIT, actually gender balance their intake. So you never get gender balance naturally. It only comes by design, which means first, you have to want it. And that's the first crux of the challenge is, do people actually want it for the right reasons? Not because it's a nice thing to do, not because they have a daughter and they want their daughter to be proud of them, but because they actually think it's do or die for their organization. Is the area of cardiology going to suffer over time if it remains 87% male-dominated? I would suggest that that would open up a lot of risks, reputational and otherwise, of trust of the people going under the knife that they might rather have a slightly better reflection of the talent pool that we see in the rest of the world and other disciplines. It reminds me very much of the arguments I hear from engineering companies that there are no women going into engineering, but if you talk to companies like Shell or Schlumberger, they say they recruit 50-50 men and women because they go and cherry pick the very best female graduates to come into organizations that really want them and are designed for them. So there's no such thing as impossible. What there is and is increasingly visibly around the world, across sectors, functions, or companies, is some people really want it, and some people are just, you know, pinkwashing, politically correct drizzle that any woman can see through these days. I wrote an article for Forbes magazine where I'm a contributor that looked at what some of the countries with the best coronavirus responses had in common. And I rather controversially answered that question and said, women leaders. And that yielded, you know, almost 8 million hits because I think people are really hungry for new models, new ideas, and new leadership styles. Yes, I think this will be an accelerating moment that won't solve it, that should probably accelerate it. I think all the incredible media attention that that article and the whole bevy of articles that then uh, resulted around it, and the fact that women are only 7% of national leaders around the world and yet are so overrepresented in some of the leadership of countries that have seemingly, at least as of this date, done relatively well in coping with the crisis, should be women with some really clear leadership skills, right? What I referred to in that article was truth, decisiveness, 
tech, the smart use of tech, which are particularly, they are stereotypically masculine leadership styles, right? They're not like, this is not something women can do and men can't. Any good leader uses truth, decisiveness, and tech ably. But it was really only the last characteristic I was pointing to, which was love, that I think they inhabit those skills with a slightly different tone, which is reassuring, builds trust, and seems to actually care for the people that they are responsible for and governing. I think every company, every sector, and particularly every healthcare worker would be well attuned to understanding that that characteristic of love is going to be incredibly important in the world we're going into. People are scared, tired, out of whack, and we're going to need a lot more trust in leaders everywhere to get back on track.